All right, well, good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20? For those of you who are new, welcome. We are working our way through John's Gospel. Come to chapter 20. I'd like to pick it up again in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. You know, as we read the Gospels, it seems fairly incredible that the followers of Jesus did not expect him to come out of that tomb alive. I mean... As you look at the Gospels, he had told them at least three or four times that he would be crucified. They're on their way to Jerusalem, and he wants to prepare them. And so he said to them uh, three, four times, Look, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be given over into the hands of wicked men, and they're going to crucify me, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. Now, he told them that over and over um, and yeah, and in fact, earlier in his ministry in John 2, he, taught, he said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, of course, back in those early days, the disciples thought he was talking about if you destroy the literal temple, uh, the stone structure that Herod beautified over the last 46 years. If you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. Later on, they realized that he was speaking of the temple of his body, which John, writing 60 years after the fact, mentions in chapter 2. This he spoke of his body. Okay? So, and then, of course, later on, Jesus used the prophet Jonah to illustrate his death, burial, and resurrection. You remember what Jesus said. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, this was not something that, you know, he only mentioned a couple times. Uh, then you add to that the three or four times he said directly, when I get to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me, but on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Uh, and all throughout the Gospels, Jesus was talking about this. He was uh, intimating it. Uh, and yet, as we come to the morning of the resurrection, all of his disciples were caught by surprise. They were all pretty much caught by surprise. They didn't know they knew the tomb was empty, but they didn't know why, which is incredible to think about. So here we are Sunday morning. It's very early. And um, 
Mary and some other women had come to the tomb to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. Notice the stone had been rolled away, uh, looked inside, and an angel, some accounts say two angels, were there, and they said, Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Go tell his disciples. And so they, they ran off. And uh, Mary got, James, uh, got P uh, Peter and John. That was the disciple that Jesus loved. John likes to stay anonymous, but we know who he is. Um, can't hide it, John. We know who you are. And um, so they ran back with Mary, and that's where we are right now. So uh, Peter and John, after they looked in the tomb and actually went into the tomb, saw it was empty. They didn't know what had gone on. Although when uh, John did enter, finally enter in, it says he saw and believed, different Greek word, he did understand at that point. Initially, he didn't even understand when he first got to the tomb. So now we're left with Mary, Magdalene, uh, verse 11. But Mary, Peter and John are gone now, they went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. Uh, guys, the first two words are striking. But Mary. But Mary. Again, the other two disciples, Peter and John, went home, but Mary stood. Mary's love and devotion for her Lord was incredibly powerful. She had been forgiven much, and therefore she loved much. Mary Magdalene has wrongly been called a prostitute by many. You've no doubt heard that. When people talk about Mary Magdalene, they often refer to her as a prostitute. That is biblically inaccurate. The Bible never calls her a prostitute. What it does say is that Jesus cast out of Mary seven demons, seven demons, which implies that Mary was heavily involved in the occult. Why do I say that? Because God won't take you over for his per personal possession. He won't force you to become his child. And if he's not going to force you because he wants you to do it of your own free will, he's certainly not going to let the devil enter into somebody and take possession uh, against their free will unless they have been fooling around in the occult. I don't believe anybody can be demon-possessed who has not opened a door to that kind of thing. And if you get involved with the occult, you open a door to the demonic. And many people pay the ultimate price. They become possessed. And let me just say this, the Bible doesn't say it directly, but I think we can, uh, we can infer this without fear of contradiction. Mary, prior to meeting Jesus, had led a miserable life. A miserable life. If you ask people, and there's a lot of folks that have gotten saved out of the occult, become Christians. If you were to ask them why they got involved in the occult in the first place, they will often tell you to gain power. They wanted power to cast spells on enemies, make love interests fall for them. It's all about power. And here's the deal. Satan will give you a measure of power if you get involved in the occult. He's got real power, and he will share some of that power with you. But Satan never gives but what he wants to take, right? He'll give you a little, but he wants to take a lot. That's how the devil works, right? And um, so he will offer people some power. And, um, but it's always a hook to grab and control their lives and ultimately to destroy their lives. Jesus said it. He said, the devil comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And after, and, you know, the people that get involved in Satanism, they think the devil is their friend, you know, because they're serving the devil. 
The devil hates them as much as he hates me and you. All they become is useful idiots for the devil. And he will use them, and he will give them a little power and, and all, but he's really wanting to use them to destroy other people's lives. And after he's used them up, and he does use these people up, he winds up leading them into drug abuse, alcoholism, or just plain suicide for, for whatever reason. Um, so he, he, he ultimately will destroy those who are even serving him because he hates everybody and wants to see all people made in the image of God wiped out. All right, But guys, we cannot imagine the torment of a person who is possessed by one demon, let alone seven. It must have been, for Mary, a life of absolute torture, misery, and hopelessness. It reminds us of another man in the Bible who was demon-possessed, another demoniac, as the Bible refers to it. Turn to Mark 5. You all know the story, Mark 5, starting with verse 1. Then they, Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So this guy's demon-possessed. Verse 3, who had his dwelling, uh, who had his dwelling among the tombs, uh, so he lived right there in the tombs as a dead man, but alive. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And verse 5 is a very sad verse for indicating this kind of life. And always night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Can you imagine a more pitiful existence? And this was, now, there's a happy ending to that story. Jesus set him free. Praise God. As only Jesus can. All right? Unless the strong man is bound, no one can plunder his house. There's only one person stronger than the devil, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty. Right? And so he delivered that man. It was two of them, actually. The one is mentioned here in Mark, but there was two of them living in the tombs. But, but this was Mary's existence before Jesus came into her life. But when she met Jesus, her life changed in ways most people, unless you were involved in the occult and even possessed. The way her life changed is incomprehensible to most people. Most people don't even under, they don't have a frame of reference to understand what she went through. But when Jesus touched her life, her life changed in a way that few can comprehend. Truly, guys, old things passed away, and everything in her life became brand new. Jesus, with simply the word of his power, drove out the darkness of the devil and brought into Mary's life the light of God. She was no longer at that point a slave of Satan, Jesus set her free, and she became a child of the living God. Wow. And don't you know that she absolutely loved Jesus for setting her free from the powers of darkness that had enslaved her for I don't know how many years, probably a bunch. And in response, she committed her life to him fully and completely. 
Her love for Jesus was so powerful that after the other disciples went home, or some of them never even came to the tomb, they were afraid the Romans were coming for them next. But after even Peter and John left to go back home, Mary stayed. I mean, she stayed because her love for Jesus was so powerful. She stayed and kept a vigil outside the tomb weeping because she thought the body of her Lord had been stolen by grave robbers or maybe the enemies of Jesus. She had lost her Lord in her mind. She didn't understand the resurrection yet. But at this point, she's weeping because not only has she lost her Lord, he's, he's gone, but she was determined to give his body a proper burial. At least I can honor his body. In that culture, uh, that was an important thing, that you were properly buried. And so her and a group of other women, Jesus' disciples came that morning early to finish preparing the body of Jesus properly for burial. And now the body's even gone. And she's heartbroken. She's heartbroken. Verse 11. When Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And at this point, she doesn't know that they're angels. She just sees two men in the tomb. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary apparently was not disturbed at seeing these men. I mean, there was no evidence at this point she knew they were angels, okay? But in the Bible, when angels appeared to people on earth, they always took human form, the form of men, okay? Um, in fact, it's such a good counterfeit that they, they can look like men, and I'm sorry, Hallmark, there are no women angels, okay? Just to break that to you. Uh, you know, you see the Hallmark cards and everything else. They're the sons of God, Bar Elohim, sons of God. They're always guys, all right? Sorry to offend somebody. Uh, you know, so those angels hanging on your tree that are all female, do whatever you want, but I'm just telling you, okay? Um, but when they take human form, it's so convincing that the writer of the Hebrews tells us, uh, be careful how you entertain strangers. You might be entertaining angels without knowing it. Let's chew on that a little bit, okay? Now, again, whenever angels appear on earth to people, um, it's always without halos and wings, okay? Um, although when somebody like Isaiah or John the Apostle uh, are given a vision of angels in heaven, they do appear with wings because they do have wings. Now, they don't appear with halos because halos are not biblical. I was telling first service, halos go back to Babylonianism. And unfortunately, Babylonianism and Christianity got commingled years and years ago. And so the image of the mother, uh, who was the mother of the sun god, uh, Semiramis and Tammuz, appear in Babylonian uh, culture, history, with the sun behind their heads. It's not a halo as we think about, about it, a symbol of holiness, 
It's not biblical, okay? As a Roman Catholic, we were brought up uh, on that imagery. Um, but it's, it's not biblical, but angels do have wings. Angels do have wings. But back to Mary. So she has a brief interaction with these two men who th she, th are, she thinks are men, they're angels. Uh, but this little brief conversation didn't dry her tears or quiet her mind. She was the, Mary was a, I, I think if you ever would have met Mary, she's one of those women that was, wow. When she put her mind to something, she did it. She was not wishy-washy. When, when she loved, she loved hard. If you got on her bad side, that would be bad too. But here, I, I, just, I just see her not consumed in a bad way, but her love for Jesus was so overwhelming that she lost him, you know, to death, but she was going to at least honor him by properly preparing his body for burial. And so, verse 14, uh, now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Well, not initially. Uh, I think next week we'll learn that she thought he was initially the gardener. But uh, verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Why didn't Mary recognize Jesus the morning of his crucifixion? Well, many commentators contend it was because she was crying. You know, tears were blurring her vision and her eyes were probably swollen. And they say that's the reason that Mary didn't recognize Jesus the morning of his crucifixion. I guess that's possible. I don't buy into that. Because as you read the Gospels and all the post resurrection accounts of Jesus appearing to people, uh, it seemed that none of his disciples recognized him after his resurrection. Why? Well, we'll look at that question in more detail when we get to chapter 21 of John's Gospel. So I'll just throw it out there for you to think about, okay? Uh, we'll revisit that question, why nobody un uh, recognized him after his resurrection. We'll get to that very shortly. But Jesus asked Mary the same question that the angels had asked. Woman, why are you weeping? Now, guys, unfortunately, we're at a disadvantage because we, we can't hear the inflection in people's voices in the Scripture. We, can't, we can read it, uh, but we can't hear it, right? I don't believe Jesus was asking Mary a question that we would ask in such a way as that we were looking for information. Mary, why are you weeping? Tell me, I want to know. No, it's, let me paraphrase the way I think Jesus said it. Mary, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Hold on to that. You know, it's interesting how often we're weeping in light of certain circumstances when if we were truly trusting in God and clinging to the promises he has given us in his word, we would be praising. I just lost my job. I don't know how we're going to pay the rent or the mortgage. The cupboards are running bare. The car needs a couple tires. I don't know what to do. Are you a Christian? Well, yeah. Well, didn't God promise you? And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise from God. Oh, yeah, but I don't know how he's going to do it. That is not your concern. 
Remember Moses, right? People were tired of manna. Our soul loathes this sweet bread. In fact, manna was a derogatory term in and of itself. It means, what is it? First time God fell, dropped manna from heaven onto the ground, they went out and said, what is it? Manna, okay? By the way, God never called it, what is it? He called it bread from heaven. It represented Jesus. But you remember the people got tired of manna. And so they came to Moses and they basically complained, said, look, our soul loathes this sweet bread. We want meat. And so God, excuse me, Moses talked to the Lord and said, Lord, they, the people want meat. They're going to stone me if they don't get some meat. He said, you go back, tell the people, I'm going to give meat, not for a day or for 10 or 20 or a month. I'm going to give them so much meat, it's going to be coming out of their nostril. Now, Moses, I totally understand where he's coming from. He said, Lord, how are you going to do that? If we were to kill every animal in our camp, we couldn't do that. And what did God say? Mo, I am the Lord. Is there anything hard for me? Right? And God took care of it. Guys, it's not for us to figure out how God's going to do something. It's only for us to cling to his promise that he will do it. And true faith praises him before we ever see him fulfill a promise. We just, it's, it's as good as done. We're, we're, we're taking it to the bank, quote unquote, right? It's as good as done because my God promised me he was going to, I'm not asking for anything extravagant. I need the, uh, the rent paid or the mortgage paid. I need food for the kids. I need a couple of tires to get to work. That's not extravagance. That's necessities. Well, I put it on the credit card and then I just trust God to pay the credit card bill. I don't think it works like that. Honestly, I don't. You want to take care of it yourself, I put it on the credit card. God will let you take care of it then. If you come to him and you say, God, I don't know what we're going to do, Lord, but I belong to you. I'm your child. You promised to take care of us. I'm going to leave it with you and let the Lord take care of it. He will. Now, guys, again, Jesus had told his disciples on three or four different occasions that he was going to be crucified, but on the third day he would rise from the dead. And here we are. This is the third day after his crucifixion. And instead of weeping over a dead Messiah, she, Mary, and the other disciples should have been looking with joy and praise for a resurrected Savior. He promised that. When you read your Bibles, can I encourage you to read them like a detective? Because often we speed read, which I encourage you never to do. But often Christians will rush through their devotions and they rush over nuggets the Holy Spirit has placed there if they would just meditate a little bit and think upon it. There are some real treasures and some real insights into things that the Holy Spirit wants us to benefit from. This simple statement by Jesus, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Whether you realize it or not, is one of the most profound and important questions in the Bible. In other words, Jesus is basically saying to her, what Jesus are you seeking? Sure, we could say a dead prophet or a resurrected Savior, of course. We just said that. But I think the question implies a lot more than that. 
a lot more than that. You know, one of the most beautiful carols sung during the Christmas season is the one written by William Dix. It start, you all know it. It starts out, What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? We can only imagine that the question asked in this beloved carol must have been uppermost in the minds of the shepherds that were present that night when Jesus was born. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, we can almost hear the question being asked from one to another, shepherds, as they gazed into the humble manger, how difficult it must have been for them to understand that the babe who lay in such a lowly place was truly the promised Messiah. And guys, through the centuries, people have continued to ponder who Jesus really is. In fact, that question, whether you realize it or not, is the most important question you will ever have to answer. Who is Jesus Christ? Or as Jesus put it, and let me say it the way I think he said it, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? There are many concepts that people hold to today as to who Jesus really is and what was his purpose and passion in life when he walked upon the earth? Let me give you some of the more popular views, okay? We see this in our culture all the time. I'm not talking about among Christians, although sometimes it does, you know. I'm talking about the world in general, about Jesus Christ, right? First of all, some see Jesus as a social reformer, a social reformer. Uh, this is the concept held by those in uh, something called the Jesus Seminar. Uh, it's, um, and, and among other uh, liberal theologians and pastors, those in the Jesus Seminar are, well, this group was founded in 1985 and is made up of about 40 to 50 liberal scholars that meet twice a year for four days at a time. Now, they actually meet to sit in judgment. I can believe this. They actually meet to sit in judgment on Jesus' words, voting on what they believe he did say and did not actually say. No problems with that, right? That's going to go well. And over the years, they've determined that Jesus only really said about 18% of what is recorded in the Gospels. To give you an example, they took the Our Father, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, so on and so forth. They analyzed the whole thing and said that Jesus only said, for sure, two words, our Father. The rest of it they wrote up. Probably didn't say it. Definitely didn't say this, you know. One of the members of the Jesus Seminar is a man named John Dominic Crossan, uh, who wrote the book, Who is Jesus? Crossan rejects the biblical Jesus in favor of one that he sees, again, as a social, political activist, a Jesus that went around speaking out against racism, sexism, injustice, and the systematic or the systemic abuse of power in the Roman Empire. This Jesus, and Crossan's not the only one who embraces a concept of Jesus like this, but this Jesus preached social reform, not repentance from sin. Next on the list, we have a Jesus that is presented by many of the televangelists today. 
one that we'll call Jesus the investment banker. This is a Jesus who has come to make us all rich. Even though he himself had nowhere to lay his head, and when he was crucified, all he owned were the clothes on his back. And yet, these people contend that it's his desire, Jesus' desire, that we Christians all drive, you know, BMWs or Mercedes, that we live in palatial mansions, that we only wear designer clothes, and we take extravagant vacations several times throughout the year. All we have to do is invest our money with Jesus, which is code for send your money to me. Right? The televangelist, invest it with Jesus. But no, it's send it to me. I'll do it for you. Okay? You invest your money with Jesus. You know, you're going to receive a tremendous return on your investment, a hundredfold or more. This Jesus that they present isn't the Jesus who said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth because they can be ripped off. It's not the Jesus who said, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. No. This Jesus is basically a Jesus that encourages greed and materialism. A Jesus that didn't come to save us from perdition, but one who came to save us from poverty. Third on the list is Jesus the environmentalist. That's a big one today. Jesus the environmentalist. Several years ago, the Wall Street Journal ran an article entitled, Religious Leaders Target SUVs. The article in part said this, and I quote, Top executives of the world's two biggest automakers plan to meet this week with religious leaders who are trying to make fuel economy of U.S. vehicles a religious as well as an environmental issue. Among those leaders is an evangelical Christian group that plans to roll out a TV ad campaign arguing that gas-guzzling cars are contrary to Christian moral teachings about protecting people and the earth. The tagline for this ad is, What Would Jesus Drive? A play on the popular Christian motto, What Would Jesus Do? WWJD, that was popular a few years ago. Now look, I think that as Christians, we should take care of God's creation. No doubt about it. It's just that some people have turned the creation into a God. And Jesus is the savior of the planet, right? An environmentalist. But do I need to say it, how much that trivializes who Jesus really is? And what he was most passionate about when he walked on the earth and still today? As he himself said, I have come to seek and to save not the planet, the people on the planet. I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. Um, somehow I just can't see the Lord Jesus Christ walking around the Sea of Galilee spearheading a give a hoot, don't pollute campaign. If you're old enough to remember that, remember that? With the owl, Right? Well, the fourth misconception of Jesus on our list is one we'll call Jesus the psychologist. Today, the church has become glorified group therapy. Glorified group therapy. And Jesus has been turned into a psychologist who many people believe his whole sole purpose for existing is to make people happy. But contrary to what many believe today, the goal of Christianity 
is to bring glory to God, not a better quality of life for ourselves. And to accomplish this, God is at work in our lives, listen, not to make us happy, but to make us holy. Because of this, he often allows trials and tribulations to come our way. Why? To grow us, to mature us. Because God is far more concerned, listen, about our eternal rewards than he is about our temporal comforts and happiness. Now you say, well, you saying God wants me unhappy? No. I'm not saying God. the goal that God has for your life is to make you as miserable as possible. I'm just saying our happiness is not really high on the list of things he wants to do. He wants to make us holy. He wants to make us like Jesus. So he can use us the most he can on this earth so that when we enter into heaven, we enter with an abundant amount of rewards, eternal rewards waiting for us. I'll give you one more. Maybe you can think of other concepts today that people have with regard to Jesus. The fifth misconception of Jesus on our list is one we'll call Jesus the BFF which means best friends forever, right? Now, folks, I have never called anybody in my life, especially Jesus Christ, my BFF. What are you, a valley girl, 14? <laughs> Come on. Oh, Jesus is my BFF. Get away from me. <laughs> now, you think, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's, let's not dismiss this so quickly. I mean, didn't Jesus say... In John 15, I don't call you servants any longer. I call you friends, right? And that's true. But first of all, let me just say, you need to understand that when God, in this case Jesus, calls you his friend, he isn't saying that you're his buddy. Like when one of your friends or buddy shows up at your door one day and you invite them in to have a beer and watch the game with you. I mean, Jesus isn't that kind of friend. He isn't your buddy or your homeboy or your bro. I've heard people use all of that with regard to Jesus. There was a ministry in Chicago that had T-shirts printed up. Jesus is my homeboy. Now, I understand what they're going for. But where's your lack of respect? Okay? Where's your lack of, you know, reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ, Right? Uh, guys, again, Jesus Christ is not your, your, your buddy, your bro, your homeboy. Even though he has called you and me his friends. The idea of being a friend of God doesn't negate, listen, our reverence for him, our worship of him, or our subservience to him as our God. It's just Jesus' way of saying that his disciples have entered into a brand new relationship with, with him under the new covenant that Israel had with God under the old or, or under the Mosaic covenant. Of course, in that culture, <clears throat> no master would ever die for one of his slaves. They may die for a friend. No master would ever tell his slaves what he was doing. It wasn't the slave's business. But he might share that information with a friend. All right, so who's right? We would say, well, the real Jesus, please stand up. And at this point, some would say, look, it isn't important really who Jesus really is. Okay, let's hear what you got there. Yeah, just as long as we esteem Jesus in our hearts, 
no matter what we perceive him to be or her to be. That, that, that's where we're living today. That kind of reasoning is so messed up, okay? And apparently Jesus didn't feel that way. That really didn't matter, you know, what you, it's like faith. It doesn't matter what you believe, people say, only that you believe something. Well, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible says you can believe a lie with all your heart and still go to hell. I mean, salvation is based on God's truth, of which Jesus is the embodiment of. But apparently Jesus didn't feel that way. He wasn't one to allow ambivalence in his disciples when it came to them understanding who he was and what he came to do. Turn to Matthew 16. You all know this, but since we're talking on this subject, let me read it to you. Matthew 16, starting with verse 13. When Jesus and his disciples came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, we would put it in these kind of vernacular. Uh, all right, guys, what's the word in the street? What, what are people saying about me? Who do they think I am? So they said, verse 14, some say you're John the Baptist, you know, raised from the dead is the idea. Some say you're Elijah, others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Faith is never a group thing. doesn't matter what the group thinks. God always brings it down to, into the personal. What do you think? What do you, what do you, who do you say that I am? Peter, often with his foot in his mouth, blows it. Here he shines. He, he blew it right after this, but at least right here he shines. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that, guys, brings us back to our hymn. What child is this? Well, the carol goes on to answer its own question with a triumphant response. This, this is Christ the King. You know, many people don't have a problem with the baby Jesus, as he is often portrayed at Christmas time. You know, they tenderly imagine the Christ child lying in that manger, so helpless and, might I add, harmless. And as long as he remains the babe, the son of Mary, you know, they'll tolerate him and maybe even feign some love for him. It's Christmas time. You know, people get kind of religious at Christmas time and talk about how much they love the baby Jesus, you know. But when he is proclaimed the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who came the first time to die for sinners and is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to send to hell those who reject him as their Savior and Lord, well, when you start presenting that Jesus, all right, there are many people who uh, bristle and say, you know what, that's a Jesus I can't tolerate. That's a Jesus I, I can't handle. That's a Jesus I refuse to bow my knee to. I mean, a baby Jesus is cute and harmless, right? It makes no demands on a person's life. But a full-grown Jesus who is king, who demands they get off the throne of their life so he can take his rightful place on that throne and be their king over their entire life, not just little segments that they feel like it, but over their entire, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all kind of a thing, right? 
And so uh, if they refuse to step off the throne of their life so that Jesus can take his rightful place as their king and savior, well, uh, that Jesus demands worship and obedience. I mean, that Jesus is is a threat and a danger to them living however they want to live. And that Jesus must be done away with. It reminds us of King Herod, right? And when I say done away with, King Herod the Great, when he found out that a king had been born, and he, king of Israel, and he was installed by the Roman government to be the king of Judea. He wasn't even Jewish. He was Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. He knew he was an interloper. He knew he was a phony, a fraud. The Jewish people knew that. And when Herod found out that a rightful king, Messiah, had come, had been born, how did he find out the wise men told him? We have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Right? Matthew 2. Herod, who was paranoid to begin with, said, well, when you find this child, will you bring me back word? Because I'd like to go and worship him also. So they went, and of course, the star led them to where Jesus was. By this time, about a year and a half had passed. They didn't get to the manger when Jesus was first born. The shepherds did. But by this time, a year and a half roughly has passed. Jesus, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are living in a house at this time. And so the wise men came, presented their gifts, and an angel appeared and said to them, Don't go back to Herod. You go home another way. So they did. Herod eventually figured out the wise men had stepped him, had, you know, had uh, betrayed him. And so he wants to find out from his theologians where this Christ child was supposed to be born. They rightly identified Bethlehem in the county of Ephrathah because there was another Bethlehem up in, the, uh, in around Nazareth. And so he sends his soldiers to slaughter all the baby boys two years old and under, just so this Jesus doesn't slip, this baby is taken care of. Well, you know the story how God woke Joseph up, had gave him a dream, and says, take the child, you and Mary go down to Egypt until Herod is dead, which is what they did. Herod tried to literally get rid of Jesus. There's a lot of folks today that can't do that. So what do they do? Well, to use our vernacular today, they cancel Jesus. They just cancel him. What does that mean? They don't, they don't talk about him. They don't think about him. Somebody brings him up, they actually he doesn't exist. All because they do not want to bow the knee to his lordship. They do not want to receive him as their king. And I don't know what concept of Jesus they're harboring under. Again, There's a lot of faulty conceptions of Jesus floating around out there. Let me just end by saying this. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. Why did he come? He came to save us from our sins. Not from depression or poverty or from global warming or even to give us a better quality of life unless the better quality of life you're referring to is the inward joy, peace, and love that comes when he fills our hearts, when he comes inside to live, as we open our hearts to Jesus. 
But he is the Jesus who is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to establish a kingdom that will never end. And guys, someday the Bible says that every knee will bow to the real Jesus and proclaim that he is Lord. If not here on earth, then on the day of judgment. Here's the thing. Everybody is going to bow the knee before Jesus Christ at some point and confess he is the Lord of God. He is the Lord. If you do it now, believing in who he is, what he did, and accepting him into your heart as your Savior, Jesus, I want you to be my king. I know you who you are, Son of God who died for my sins, rose again the third day from the dead. And I, I receive you. I want you to come in and live in my heart. Take control. I want you to be my king, my Lord. You bow the knee now to Jesus, you will be saved. If you wait until the day of judgment when you have to stand before him and you bow the knee then and you will and you will confess he is Lord to the glory of God, it's too late. It's too late. Guys, Jesus will be one of two things to every person who has ever lived. You ready? He'll either be loving Savior or righteous judge. And what you do with Jesus right now will determine what he becomes to you then. Don't give Jesus lip service. Don't just call him Lord. The word Lord is not a name. His name is not Lord. His name is Jesus. Lord is his title. It's a title for somebody that you've given control of your life over to. People can call Jesus Lord all they want, but if he's not controlling their life because they're not letting him, he's not really their Lord. Turn quickly. Two last scriptures will close. Again, don't give him lip service. Don't just call him Lord Make him Lord of your life by fully surrendering your life to him. Two scriptures. First of all, Luke chapter 6. Put your finger there and then turn to Matthew chapter 7. First of all, Luke 6. Jesus had a lot of what we would call groupies. I mean, he was the big prophet in town. Everywhere he went, he was working miracles, feeding thousands with small amounts of food, putting down the religious leaders every chance he got, and they loved that, the crowd, because they hated these guys. Smug, arrogant, self-righteous, religious guys are always looking down on the peasants. So whenever Jesus sent them away with their tail between their legs, yeah, one for our team, you know, that kind of thing. So he had a lot of groupies that followed him for a lot of reasons. Not all of them were good reasons. And, I, and, and every once in a while, he turned to the crowd, to his disciples, and he would try to thin the herd. Because he wasn't looking for big numbers. He was looking for right hearts. And so in Luke's gospel, he does this. He turns to his disciples one day and says in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? That is incredibly pertinent to our culture. Turn to Matthew 7. Matthew elaborates. Jesus went on to say in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And guys, don't misunderstand. He's not saying you have to work and work and obey, and if you earn enough points because you obey enough, maybe you'll make it into heaven. That's not what he's saying. He is saying anyone with a true, with true saving faith who loves Jesus and has really accepted him into their heart, 
it's going to be demonstrated through a life of obedience. Perfect obedience? Of course not. None of us obey perfectly. But as John put it in 1 John 3, you can read it at your leisure this week, uh, here, here's how you know the children of God and the children of the devil, he said. The children of God, listen, practice righteousness. Sure, they still blow it once in a while, but the general pattern of their life is they practice obedience, righteousness, and once in a while blow it, where the children of the devil, many of whom are churchgoers, practice unrighteousness and once in a while do something good. It's the general pattern of a person's life. So when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, what he is saying is because those who really do the will of my Father, those that really want to obey God, indicate they have the Holy Spirit inside of them. Remember John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. Salvation. And they, what? Follow me. So let me end by asking you the question again. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you? And I know if you put that question to the world at large, well, I'm seeking Buddha, I'm seeking this, I'm seeking this financial girl, he's going to me, make me rich. Okay, let's leave all those folks out and just talk about those who consider themselves Christians. Which Jesus are you seeking? We just gave you a list. There's probably other misconceptions of Jesus. You can only answer that question this way. Basically, the right answer would be, who are you seeking? What Jesus are you I'm seeking Jesus, the Son of God, who died for my sins and rose from the dead, the Jesus who is my Savior and King, who is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to establish a, a never-ending kingdom of righteousness, truth, and love, that is the Jesus I am seeking. That's the true Jesus. And to rip off a bumper sticker from this time of year especially, wise men still what? Wise men still seek him. And didn't God say, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. When finding Jesus in your life becomes that much of an obsession, a holy obsession, where all you can think about is knowing him, getting right with him, and living for him, you will find him because he's not hiding. This is not a game. He has come seeking and saving those who are lost, and he continues to the Holy Spirit every single day to work in people's hearts who are not saved, drawing them to Jesus. And we were all there. And at one point, we started to respond. We didn't even know the Holy Spirit was working. All of a sudden, we wanted to go back to church. I was looking at a Bible on my coffee table for a year and a half. Somebody gave us when we got married. Having a nice spot in the coffee table, because you know what? It's a nice little uh, ornament for the house there. You got your little Bible. In the t we're a good family. You go to church? No, but I got my Bible out there. We gave a Bible to my aunt and found out later she used to prop up one of the legs of her coffee table. So, you know, it's like, you know, not, not everybody's perfect. Yeah, right. Um, but I said to myself for a year and a half, two years, someday I'm going to read that book. Well, January, one particular year started. 
And I thought, this is a good time to read the Bible. And so I opened it up. Wow. Um, it was about as dry and dusty as you could possibly, it could possibly be. Leviticus, Numbers. I mean, I barely made it through Genesis and Exodus. Now I'm in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm, kill me now. It took me like six months to get that far. I was, it was terrible, dry. It was ridiculous. I was getting nothing out of it. You know why? Because the author wasn't living inside of me yet. And I went out to California with my wife to visit my family. I just moved out there uh, like eight months earlier. My mom had recently gotten saved, was going to a Bible teaching church, went out there, and she witnessed to us, and I accepted Christ. When I came back home, I opened the Bible. Did I understand everything? No. But boy, did it come alive. Because the author was now living in my heart, who led, was leading me into all truth. So may God give us grace. We realize that, you know, this Christmas time is such a wonderful time for many of us. A lot of work, a lot of people go crazy as far as, you know, just getting everything done. But it really all is, is really all about one thing. Jesus is the reason for the season. And it's all about a gift. Not a gift we give each other, but the most precious gift in the world that God gave to us, his son. Let's think about that, okay? That's our Jesus. That's not the world's Jesus, but that's our Jesus, right? May God give us grace to focus on our Jesus. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your only begotten Son, that we might become your children, which we have. Thank you, Lord, for your indescribable gift of salvation through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.